This is Dead Stick Radio, episode 15, recorded August 25th, 2020. The future of aviation in Alberta with MLA Shane Getson. This episode is brought to you by Podcast Edmonton. Whether you're starting a new podcast or looking to take your podcast to the next level, visit podcastedmonton.com. Okay, and we have Shane Getson here, the uh, UCP MLA for God's Country, Laxanan Parkland. Did I get Absolutely, that right? yeah. It's definitely God's Country, and you definitely have the constituency name right, Scott. Thanks. All right. Do we normally title that with the Honorable Shane Getson? No. Well, uh, well, you could, but uh, typically that that acronym is is held for the actual ministers. So until then, I guess I'm not honorable, but just uh, you know, close, quasi honorable, <laughs> semi honorable. Fair <laughs> yeah. enough. Yeah. So so we have so for everybody listening from say the U.S. or wherever, we have three layers of government, right? And this is social studies that I didn't take for 15 years. Yeah. But there's the uh, Canadian national government which is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And then, <coughs> oh, God. Who? <laughs> and then underneath that, we've got uh, provinces and territories, yep. and they each have their own governments, kind of like how the states in the U.S. have their own governments. Uh, we have premiers where the states have governors. And then we've got local governments as well, which is uh, like the mayor of Edmonton, for example, or the mayors of the counties. And then they're responsible for their own, I guess, uh, smaller areas. So you're the provincial government level, which looks after the uh, the riding, we call it, or the area kind of northwest of Edmonton, which includes Villeneuve Airport. Is yeah, that right? that's correct. And you're really close. So federal is ridings, and it, it always gets mixed up. It's goofy. I didn't realize the, the nuances as well. And then constituencies are kind of left for... Uh, the provinces themselves or the territories. And you're absolutely right, Scott. And, uh, you know, with that, you have three levels of government. There's tons of interface between them, and it's no different than the states. They run basically the similar similar model, except they have a better electoral process, in my opinion, than than we do. Right. Okay, that makes sense. So um, you you were elected when? What was that, about a year ago? Yeah, so I'm pushing, I guess, a year and three months, a year and four months, something like that. Uh, Our election was back in April of uh, 2019 and here we are now right so you you uh you've been a pilot for a long time right based out of villeneuve out of the the other hangar over here on the east side of the field yep um you you worked in the area you live in the area and you decided what two years ago now i guess that you decided you wanted to have a change in career is that right uh how'd that come up yeah so I, I didn't decide I wanted to change in careers. I was mad as a hornet and I wasn't going to take it anymore, like that old movie, you know, line. <laughs> uh, so essentially what I was is I'm a civil engineering technologist, so I'm a near engineer. And I kind of, you know, like to look at that as the uh, the quasi-interpreter for, for everybody else between tradespeople and the engineering group, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, worked in the heavy industrial sector for a number of years, so all over Canada, uh, down in the States as well. Yeah. And then started my own consulting company about uh, 2003. And uh, the last part of my career, the last 15, 20 years, was predominantly um, midstream, so pipelines. And I had project teams both in Canada and the U.S. I uh, was based out of Edmonton. I was a consultant that worked for some of the larger ones, so uh, Enbridge and TransCanada, of the likes like that. Yep. And I had about 33 people that were my own consultants dropped into these major projects. Um, so I was all over the States. I uh, did a little bit of work over in Germany as well with some software applications over there that tie into linear scheduling. And was flat out, crazy busy, everything else. 2014, my wife came up to me and said, uh, you're averaging about maybe six days of the month at home. 
you better figure out what's more important to you, your work <laughs> or having your key work in the house door when you get home. So that was a bit of a wake-up call, and I throttled back a bit on the on the consulting side of things, took on a small project for, for TransCanada, and it was uh, running a 20 and a 36-inch pipe down from Fort Mac down to Edmonton. So just a little $3.5 billion project. Um, and then all of a sudden the bottom started falling out. We had some electoral changes. Uh, projects were getting cancelled, and, and literally the tipping point for me was uh, a project called White Fox, and it was a little... <laughs> 12-inch line that was going to displace uh, fresh water that was, or, or water, I should say, process water that was being put into the McLeod River and move it upstream for up to Fox Creek for fracking. Mm-hmm. And the system had be so, become so convoluted, and the political will was to try to shut down the energy sector, that that project, they couldn't determine which regulatory group was going to run it, so they decided both. It delayed the project another two years. We literally had about $150, $200 million sitting on the table, and we couldn't spend it. We could not get project certainty. So at that time, there was um, you know, election that was taking place. I started garnering some interest in politics, received an email that they were, uh, the party was looking, the UCP was looking for some directors. I thought I'd give a hand with the little constituency and help them out. And uh, lo and behold, they had a, uh, a nomination race. The candidate ended up getting deselected, the one that was uh, elected. And I got tapped on the shoulder and said, hey, would you mind helping us out? So again, an industry guy, technical background, running major projects, saw the, the industry getting hammered and put down, and a lot of really good, hardworking people out of work at the time. And I thought, you know what? The guy that I was running against was a minister, so I guess he was honorable. Yeah. <laughs> He was the, the Minister of Agriculture and Forestry, and uh, if I was going to go out, it was going to go swinging. So I had a chance of all the frustrations, and I literally went around the community and started, I called it trap lining, dropping into the little cafes and stuff and getting to know people, and, and literally put a, a form out that was, what matters to you? So I would drop these things out. The restaurant owners, after I'd you know, met them a couple times, they started asking for it. They'd hand these things out. People would fill out what their concerns were, and that literally became my mandate for the platform and the commitments that I made the constituents. And coincidentally, they lined up very well with, with our mandate as the UCP for our, our platform. And I got up to go up on stage and I got to rip into the guys that have been messing up our industry. <laughs> and lo and behold, there was enough people that felt the same way across the province. And uh, here I am. So I'm elected now and I get to be the voice for about 50,000 people uh, within our area. Mm-hmm. And uh, absolutely, I refer to it as God's country. We have two airports out here. We've got everything on the shadow community right from Edmonton at their city limits. And we go out all the way out to uh, Highway 22 going north. So you have farms, you have energy sector, you have manufacturing, you have fabrication, you have small business, you have uh, um, mobile home parks, you have uh, farming in between, big cottages, acreages, recreation. cottages, recreation, everything in between. And that's where I'd say it's a little bit of God's country. Yeah, you're within the doorstep of a million-person population, but you have access to that, but you can get away from it. And uh, again, to go see it by air, it's phenomenal. Yeah, I agree. So speaking of which then, how did you get into flying? Like, Because that's totally oh. different than what you just said. Yeah. Uh, They're well, not related, are they? Well, I'm a, I'm a politician, so I, I avoid questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the, the flying thing was ever since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, I was always looking up. Because I grew up on a farm about uh, an hour and a half west of here, and uh, you would see the air traffic. You know, again, we're on that great circle. You get to see most of the traffic flying overhead. And I just loved it. I'd, I'd always wanted to be around airplanes and see it. And uh, we end up doing, uh, my dad, but during the 80s, it was pretty poor economical times. And uh, my dad ended up getting this sawmill, this portable sawmill. 
ended up down in Drayton Valley sawing for a, a guy down there by the name of Alex Nikolaychuk. And uh, he was actually um, part of the Air Cadet, so he trained kids to fly. And he saw that I had an interest, and he started feeding me, you know, from the ground up, old manuals, those type of things. And I felt it was something that I could do. Never did get a chance to, to go do that. Again, we're pretty strapped for cash growing up. But uh, when I got married, my, my wife, at the, um, she kind of heard me talking about it, and one of her Christmas presents to me the first year we were married was actually a ground school package from Lacklebish and said, here, stop dreaming, go do it. <laughs> so that was pretty cool, and that's how I, that's how I got into it. And um, it was, you know, the justification was a, a way to be able to get home. Because again, working remote on projects to get home rather than driving for seven hours, I could fly back there. Yeah. And I got really crazy and wanted to start building my own airplane once I started looking at uh, what was out there for certified versus the amateur built. And then that's kind of where I ended up. Yeah, so, double the performance, half the cost. Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, for the first plane that we put together, which was pretty cool, it was an RV7 and we put a Subaru power plant up front. So we, we got to do a bunch of designing for it. And uh, uh, Ralph Inkster out of Springbank, um, I was his first customer that he took on. Um, so it was really neat to, and at that time I was up in Athabasca, he flew his RV7A up and uh, pre-paint. So got to go through this thing, fly it with him, and just, just loved it. And then we made a deal that, uh, you know, he would, he would basically do the building. I was on a project down in Cold Lake at the time trying to build it out in Pierce Line, Saskatchewan, with another guy, uh, um, Harold Foss out there, another longtime guy in the aviation community. And I just couldn't get enough time to do it. Ralph became available. It was his first semi-retirement job, and I threw it in the shop. And then he was crazy enough that we started looking at different components. Um, you know, he's also part of that crowd that goes down to Oshkosh every year. And then he also, uh, Bill Beaton did his, his, you know, Formula One plane that he had racing in the, you know, the induction system and everything else and the math that they put on it. Yeah. So that's the same guy that built my RV7. And oh, yeah. uh, just had a blast and learned tons along the way with it, poured way more cash than a person ever should have, but we came up with something really cool. So when, when was this that you started building that plane? That would have been about uh, 2012, I think. Okay, so not yeah, that right long ago. Yeah, not that long ago. It, it was interesting, though, to see, and, and you know, all the folks out there that know the amateur side of it and the advancements, though, it was kind of avionics that really kind of antiquated that plane. And it was neat to see that we had the steam gauges on the left seat, and then we had kind of what was coming up for the original EFASs and those type of things, and the Blue Mountain avionics is kind of what I went with there. And then Ross Farnham out of Springbank had his SDS uh, systems. That's what we had for the electronics on the car engine, so it actually really ran well. That guy's awesome. Oh, he's he's great. Rotten. Yeah, he's a great guy. And uh, so those are the type of crowd that this first plane that I fell into of working with these guys and coming up with the crazy nutty professor ideas, and these were the guys that actually figured it out. And it really coalesced, came together as a really cool project. Wow. So what happened to that airplane? Uh pilot error. So I was on a trip, um, it would have been about two years ago, I was heading down to Truro, Nova Scotia for a business meeting down there. And uh, we ended up catching some weather, like literally, there was this nice storm, it was a hurricane that was coming off the East Coast at the time. And I got walled in, I didn't take my passport with me, otherwise I would have ducked south and went around it. So uh, was out in Dryden, uh, made the decision, delay, came back, landed in Yorkton. There was winds all over the place, gusting 35 knots, and it's tail dragger, and I'm bringing it in nicely. First gust, second gust, I'm about maybe three feet off the ground and caught a major gust in my right wing and spun me a bit, and I did an off-landing, uh, off-runway uh, landing. And, uh, yeah, both of us walked away. The airframe was that breaking point of either rebuild it or just 
walk away from it. Throw it in the scrap heap. So I, I took the cash. I bought the plane back. It's sitting in Ralph's hangar. It's my wife hopefully isn't watching this. Um, <laughs> it's in Ralph's hangar and eventually we'll we'll rebuild that plane. But um, what I did learn out of that is well, yeah, piloting skills are really important. Uh, your paint job is uh, not as important as making sure you have a solid landing and uh, know your limitations. I'd landed the day before in Dryden at 35 knots gusting. This one literally just caught me. Now, the solace I did have is I was dragging my you know chin across the friggin' tarmac, and we go over to the uh, ag place that it was sitting behind, and one of the mechanics goes to me, and I'm going, ah, oh, you know, wrecked my plane, and God, I'm terrible. And he says, come here for a sec, son. This older fella, he walks me around and shows me the boneyard. And he says, what do you see there? And I said, a lot of wrecked planes. He says, you think you're the only pilot that ever got caught with a gusting crosswind in Yorkton, Saskatchewan? Oh, yeah. But you were also, you were pushing the limit so hard and far from where most people would stop. And when people do that kind of thing, the the risk and the chance of yep. have, having an accident is that much higher. Most people would stop and not fly at, say, 20 knots. And you were in gusting 35. Well, I had felt comfortable with it the day before and, yeah. and everything else, right? And the other thing too, I guess in retrospect, is that get there itis. So again, I was coming back to Edmonton so I could catch a jet to go back and and head back to Truro. So again, you know, the lesson learned on that is no business meeting is worth it. Um, if you have a different option, take it. And again, it's it's you know one of those things through experience. So the thing that taught me out of that was yeah, to really pay attention to what those winds are doing. Practice, practice, practice your crosswind techniques, you know, those type of things when you have uh, winds. And 35 knots now, yeah, I'm very hesitant about getting up and doing anything in it. Did you find yourself getting lazy with your crosswind inputs? Because I know that happens to me. I find myself getting lazy with my, with that uh, end-to-wind aileron. Well, and that was the difference. So, you know, the cub I had is, um, you know, somebody else bought that was really nice. Uh, <laughs> that uh, when you're flying tandem, it's a little bit easier, I found, to, yeah. to watch what your wing and your inputs are. And I also had a passenger at the time that was uh, one of the mentors of mine, John Madsen, that got me into flying as well. Yeah. So he was with me. So I had my, you know, safety net. But... With uh, having a passenger in a side-by-side -side seating, the gusting right was coming at the passenger side. And yeah, if I was by myself, I probably would have put more inputs into it. But just for whatever reason, like, like it caught me. And I, literally, I was two feet off the ground. Wing was down. I was into it. And it just, yeah, it was there. So that, that exact same thing happened to me on the air tour that we just went on. Oh, no kidding? Going in Westlock? Uh, going to Barhead, actually. Yeah. I came down below the trees and the, and the wind had pretty much stopped. But you know, down below the trees, it gets gusty and it's not just steady anymore. Yeah. So I was flying by myself, left side, right crosswind, fairly stiff right crosswind. And I'd flown all day and I got lazy on my crosswind inputs. For those listening in a tailwheel airplane, I think all airplanes, uh, when you're in a crosswind, you want to have a lot of into wind yep. aileron to keep that into wind wing down. You don't want it coming up. Well, and I was doing three-point landing too. So, you know, there's that argument. Do you three-point it when you have a crosswind or you keep it, you know, wheel landing? Yeah. And I don't know, like to do it over again, I probably would do wheel landing. So there's little things that you know and you're always second-guessing yourself too on it. But yeah, you can never take it for granted. And like they say with the tail draggers, you fly it right to the to the hangar. Yeah. Um, and again, yeah, if I could say anything else, yeah, Try to go up and practice crosswinds as much as you can. Don't don't get lazy, like you said. The other thing too was, um, you know, it was tired. It was a long trip. Like we were up late the night before, trying to get in, do on all those things, and you start looking at, at workload. And with my prior consulting life, you know, it's you don't get a lot of sleep. So there was a lot of those things that potentially could have the best decision that I should have made. You know, going into in, I was in Yorkton the day before, but we were in there earlier. 
And if I would have done anything differently, would have looked at what the conditions were later in the afternoon in York, at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock is a lot different than 8 a.m. in the morning or 9 a.m. in the morning. Mm -hmm. So knowing the terrain you're going into, especially when you're doing uh, cross countries, pay way more attention to it and put your flight planning into it and uh, get their itis. Yeah, I could have stayed another day in Dryden and came home the next morning. I think, I think that's how it, almost all the accidents I know of have been that same kind of situation is somebody pushing the limits with wind. Yep. Yeah. And they've almost all been runway yeah, exactly. In, and when I was when I was doing my training, I almost had a couple bad accidents. Uh, fortunately, I had an instructor there with me, but uh, we were pushing beyond my limits, definitely within his limits. But uh, it could have gotten squirrely. And it's, yeah. it's you know sometimes you just got to say, all right. And and if I hadn't been with the instructor doing the instruction on the plane, I probably would have said, you know, I'm just going to push until the next day or the day after that. And, yeah. But uh, yeah, you, you can end up in bad situations, bad crosswinds, gusty crosswinds. And, well, and it was a bizarre feeling, um, you know, again, with that power plant up front and flying that plane for a number of years, I had it like, I mean, you get, everybody knows that you spend time in your plane, you, you get to know that machine. Yeah. And uh, when I've got full right rudder and right aileron into it, and I've got full power on, as soon as it started getting goofy like that, and that left wing had already stalled out. I was already that close to on the ground. I could not pick that wing up. That was a friggin' freaky feeling. Because again, it was everything you've done in the past, you know, this is how you correct it and you're out of it and bang, your your reactions are on it, you're on the throttle and pulling it over and you're into it and and it just You're it long for the ride. It would not lift. And that was the most disconcerting part is all of a sudden, yeah, now you're around and the gear catches and then you're spinning around and you're going backwards. Not having control like that is probably the most nightmarish thing i can think of in an airplane up high or down low yeah yeah well i mean you guys get into way different things i mean with your air racing and some of the aerobatics you get into but um yeah it's a humbling experience but the best part is yeah i'm still into it i got the eight so yeah. uh you know there was my lesson learned i ended up getting an rv8 ralph went down to the states and looked at it it was um you know a guy uh, had built it himself um you know, he was a 32, 33 year AME. This is his plane. Let's, uh, it was at that magic time at about. Uh, I think we've got it. Oh, sure. Hey. Hey. Come on up. Okay. Have a seat. <laughs> so it was that uh, magic time where it was uh, right at the hours that you could do actually do the import from the States up to here. Uh, Ralph flew down with another customer that he had. He built a, an eight at the same time, took that eight down there, looked at this one, and you'd have to know Ingster, Ralph Ingster. He's one of the most meticulous guys that you'll ever meet. And I mean, perfect is not perfect enough for Ralph. And he wrote me, and like in true Ralph fashion, he did a five page review on this thing, going through every single component, all that type of stuff. And he wrote back exceptional build quality. So for Ralph to say exceptional build quality, I had, you know I had something that was definitely worth it. Uh, made an arrangement with the owner. He flew it up to Springbank, and then the you know the problem took the MDRA. They hadn't um, <laughs> reawarded the guy's contracts, the MDRA. So I caught it right at the worst time for doing import. They didn't have an, their licenses in place. It got delayed off. I pre-registered my registration marks. That got delayed. Transport Canada really didn't care if they registered or not. So they were going to take their three months plus, even though I had all the paperwork sitting there, and then it extended to four or five months because they you know really wanted to take their time. So it took me over a year to get the plane that I wanted, that I'd gone out and done all this work on and, you know, paying all the hangar fees and everything else to get it in there and doing the little tweaks to finally jump on that thing. So I've been, was flying the club, the cub prior to that. And I jokingly said to some folks that, had, you know, I talked to, I kind of developed cub foot. 
versus the sensitivity you'd put for the control inputs on on an RV. So it you know you literally it's that humbling experience of starting over again to learn to fly your plane. And uh, fortunately enough, the hangar I keep mine in. There's a lot of old hands there that do the the aerobatics. Yeah. And Charlie Tucson was nice enough to check me out on my own plane and make sure that I was landing it properly and doing that. We went up for about three or four flights and. Yeah, now we're getting to do air rallies and do those things. So I'm loving it. Love that plane. That yeah. man, I hear those planes fly amazing. Yeah, like and, an absolute dream. Yeah, and uh, you've got a really interesting paint job on that uh, that plane. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool. So the uh, the prior owner of it, he was uh, kind of a P51 aficionado as well. He really liked it. And there was uh, I can't remember which it was the Minnesota Air Guard or something like that. And he had his plane, the the RV, sitting next to this, and it was almost like a a mirror image of the of the paint scheme. So it, it literally is painted up with Invasion Day uh, stripes on it. It kind of looks like a, a P-51. He's got the wingtips on it were yellow. And his registration mark was uh, uh, November 51 for Mike, or, or for Mike <laughs> Echo. So N-51, P-51 for me, that was his. And uh, he had the, the bars and stars on it. Well, not, even though my granddaddy was from North Dakota, you know, one of my, my grandfathers was North Dakota, um, I didn't think I could quite abide by, you know, flying with the American stars. I don't know if... No, yeah, with the Canadian registration. With Canadian <laughs> registration. And no insult, you know, nothing against the, you know, my cousins and everybody else and our good neighbors to the south. But I ended up taking the, the provincial emblem, the coat of arms, and uh, worked with a graphic artist out of uh, um, Seinfab out of uh, Stony Plain. And we kind of messed around with it, took the, the Bar and Star logo, and then came up with the, the Alberta insignia, you know, the strong and free province of the country here. And uh, we came up with a roundel that literally went right over top of it. So when you look at it, you expect to see a Bar and Star, but you've got the Alberta emblem sitting on it. Oh, and, and you know, by the way, it's uh, this right here. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, the first time I walked up to it, I was like, wait, what is that? Wait, that's the Alberta flag. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of folks, uh, you know, it's like anything with aircraft. You know, one of the things I noticed in aviation was that there's there's no stigmas. You know, if anyone has rode and ridden motorcycles or doing that, you know, the dirt bike crowd is one thing, but <clears throat> you know, dirt track stuff, and then you get into the street bikes, and then all of a sudden there's this difference between a Harley owner and a Honda owner. Sometimes they won't even wave to you when you're on the highway. I don't find that with aviation. You can take somebody who flies, oh, excuse me, <coughs> F-18s, or you can take somebody who flies 737s and you pull up with a little RV. It doesn't matter. Everyone flies the same planes or an old Cub. I mean, you'll take, you know, 10,000-hour captains or 30,000-hour captains. I'll walk over and talk to you about the Cub. Yeah, I find that too. Yeah, when I was uh, yeah. when I was doing my initial flight training, uh, doing the cross-country, the solo cross-country, I flew out to, oh, what was it, um... Uh, Vegreville and uh, St. Paul, I think, or somewhere up in that range, and just landed and stopped the plane and got out and started walking around. And some guy comes up, he's like, "Hey, you looking for fuel?" I'm like, "No, no, I'm just just doing my training." He's like, "Oh, okay. Why don't you come take a look at my plane?" And he's nice. telling me all about his ag tractor, and he can't fly it right now because it's too hot, but he's gonna be flying later. And uh, it was cool. You just get to talk to random people. Everyone's mm-hmm. everyone wants to talk about their airplane, and and uh, there's you know that the 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 trope that uh, you basically can't get a pilot to shut up, right? Like, how do you know someone's a pilot? <laughs> Wait Don't worry, they'll tell yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the other thing, too, is that, uh, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to go on a couple trips, and again, with Ralph and those guys, and, and it's no, you know, nothing new to you guys, but the first time, you know, I flew down there to Fun and Sun was out of six planes out of Springbank, you know, and the other time that I've done anything like that was on a bike tour, so that's the only thing I could compare it to. And the fact that you get... You know, six or seven or twelve people kind of loosely associated that kind of know each other, and you end up troping across or you know tripping across the states, and uh, you end up at the, these events. 
like the people you meet along the way are just phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, you know, the fact that we got to fly over Mount Rushmore and, and do a circle around that. I mean, something as a farm kid from Alberta that, you know, again, those humble beginnings didn't have much of a, you know, financial background to do this, to literally be tripping along and see that and go past Devil's Peak. And then we whipped over and it was uh, Chino, I think it was. And I saw, I was really just nut bars about L39 albatrosses at the time and still am actually, I kind of have a soft spot for them. But I see an L39 sitting there. So we end up dropping in this place for fuel and it turns out it's Red Star. So it's on a Sunday and, and a Red Star for the folks that aren't familiar with it, they're the private fighter guys. Like they have the private fighter contracts. So I'm convinced Ralph to go over there. I'm knocking on this back door and what do you know, there's a technician there. Well, we had uh, unfettered access to the entire hangar. They had a couple of MiG, uh, MiG-29 sitting there that they bought from the Ukrainian military. They were trying to get them running in Alpha jets and the L-39s. And then I'm getting to climb inside of these things. Like that's what the aviation community does, foreign country, and they're letting you climb all of other stuff and do that. And then made it down to Sun and Fun and, and did all that. And then, uh, you know, one other time had a, uh, fortunate, you know, again, with my uh, teams that I was running out of uh, North, or not of North Dakota at the time, but out of uh, uh, Duluth and Superior, Wisconsin. So I ended up sliding by and dropping in Oshkosh. We stayed there for a couple of days and Ralph flew down, like it was pretty neat, flew down, yeah. caught him up there so he could tour us around Oshkosh for a couple of days. That's the aviation community. You, you, know, you don't necessarily get that with some of the other cliques because it's kind of brand specific in aviation. It doesn't matter what you have, where you came from, what you do for a living or otherwise, it's that fraternity. And people watch out for each other, and it's it's a genuine, honest brotherhood. It's a definite fraternity, and love it. Yeah. Go ahead, Brian. Well, it's funny. You should you should mention that uh, 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 motorcycles, motorcycles and, and airplanes kind of have that same kind of oh, yeah. culture in, in a sense. When I used to be out at the Soaring Club, uh, I used to call it the, Soren, the Edmonton Soaring and Motorcycle Club because <laughs> half the people out there had motorcycles, yeah. and they were all part of other little clubs as well. So really interesting interesting parallels there for sure. Well, it is, and anybody that uses their hands or feet, and that's what I'll do to transition. Can you jump on a bike? Can you ride a dirt bike? Yeah. Can you use your feet and your hands? Yeah. Well, you can fly a plane. You know, there's that sense and that feel to it. And, um, you know, the instrumentation obviously is one thing, but understanding what that machine is doing, you know, the sounds and the sensations to it, it's it's paramount to being a safe pilot, I believe, too. You're not just scanning the instruments, you're, you know, you know the cliche, you're being one with the machine, you're hearing those little sounds and just that subtle nuance and you'll, you'll pick it up. And it, it goes one step further, too, than, say, motorcycles or cars. Because both of those industries are so large, yep. the companies basically take care of all of your maintenance, uh, your wear and tear. Uh, anytime it breaks, you take it in for service, so you never do get to learn the machine. Yep. Whereas with aviation, you can design your own airplane still. You can build your own airplane with no, no um, governing bodies overseeing the safety of this thing. You can build it. They do a quick inspection. They give you your, your certificates to fly, and you can go test your machine right there. Yeah. And you, then on top of that, you can do all of your own maintenance as well. And these machines don't have the, the enormous operating um, budgets or, I guess, uh, development budgets that some of these big companies have in, like, say, Ford or Dodge or yeah. Chevy or somebody. So the machines are still very simple and actually quite far behind the technology times as cars. So there's a ton of opportunity to grow in that, too, and develop and build your own and figure out how to do it better. Yeah. Well, and I think on the amateur side, you know, I think, it, Scott, you hit the nail right in the head. The certified side, obviously, that's the, the Ford and Chevy of the world, and they're, you know, kind of marching along that side. But when you look at the amateur built and the experiment side, it's literally, if you can prove the math, 
if you can make sure that it's safe enough, that it should be airworthy. You got somebody else looking over your shoulder. They're going to give you that stamp, and it's yeah, you're Chuck Yeager. Go figure it out. Yeah, it's totally wild west. Yeah, and and the great thing is the the avionics that came along with that is that you know you saw guys like Garmin that started out at Bendix and King, and you've got Gary and and uh, Min that are sitting there going, hey, I got this great idea. Yeah, you know they split up their own company. Well, everything is also rapidly accelerated around that amateur build side they can do stuff that you would never do in a certified aircraft advanced software do all those type of things that then can become mainstream and i think that you know between the faa and transport canada they're starting to get it to a degree they have to allow these incubators and that ingenuity to take place if we're going to want it to thrive um, you know and i'm going to do a bit of a segue into the aerospace industry and, and aviation if i can that's why as me as an MLA, the political side is, yeah, I'm a large proponent of aerospace and, and you know, economy and everything else. And the fact that we've got this economic relaunch and we named aerospace, we actually, member Godfrey put together an aviation council, passed a private member's bill. That's how much interest we have. You know, with my prior life, we had a, a project that was down in uh, Eddystone, Pennsylvania. We were doing a transshipment facility, moving oil from Minot, North Dakota, down to uh, Eddystone, Pennsylvania, unloading on the Delaware River and feeding a bunch of refiners, of which, you know, um, Delta ended up buying the trainer refiner because for the price of a 747, they could have, you know, all the jet fuel they wanted and <laughs> trade that. So, you know, good, good value for the buck, right? So we're moving all this oil down there. One of the engineering companies is in, uh, in uh, Wichita, Kansas, MK and Associates. So I was really stoked to go down there, do an engineering review. But being in Wichita, you know, where Cessna was was formed, you've got Learjet sitting there on the sidelines, you've got, you know, Boeing there, you've got Garmin, all these type of things. And then roll the clock forward, and I'm looking at what we have at our disposal here. We could be Wichita North, this region, this area, this province. It's an untapped resource. And when you look at the transferable skill sets, because we're strong energy sector guys, you know, that's what we've been doing for a number of years. But the skill sets that you develop doing uh, the energy side of things, you know, all the drilling, the downhole stuff, all the, the electronics that go with it, all the software development that goes with it, the, the quality control, the assurances that go with that, the, you know, the integrity that goes with it, all transferable over to the aerospace. So if we can, if we have a decline on one side of it, you can transfer a bunch of workforce with hardly anything in this hiccup and just grow this thing. We could be Wichita North. We can take advantage of it. We've got most beautiful airspace, best flying days ever in Alberta. Sunny Alberta is what we're known for. We could literally launch this entire industry. And now we've actually have some political will to go after it. We're going to herd the cats together and we're going to make sure that we actually take a run at this and uh, grow this industry. Wow. Well, so I keep hearing about this uh, this little thing called the Villeneuve Landing Network, but uh, <laughs> I don't quite know exactly what it is. Maybe you can uh, fill me in. Yeah, it's like the best kept secret around. But, uh, you know, so as an newly elected official and, and uh, you know, being out here and having the plane on the field and being around it, there was always this, I guess, animosity, a little bit of animosity between the uh, Edmonton International Airport and Villeneuve Airport itself. So, do, you, do you want to talk about that? Talk about that a little bit? For yeah, sure. So, so folks that aren't, that aren't aware of it, um, um, we've got Springbank to the south. And yeah, you've got in Calgary. Calgary. That's Calgary's kind of GA airport, general exactly. aviation airport. And then you have Villeneuve to the north, and you have the Edmonton International. Now, back in the day, Villeneuve and Springbank were basically started at the same time. And, you know, this is political politics, or, or however we have a differentiation, the competition between Calgary and Edmonton all the time. Uh, Calgary managed to grow their stuff. Like, they just took off. They were building hangars out there. They had a bunch of people in there, a bunch of innovation. All the guys I was talking about, you know, yeah. down there helping me with that RV7 build. And they grew this thing like you wouldn't believe, where Villeneuve kind of languished. Well, I believe a lot of that was that you had a will and an interest in the area, but there wasn't really a will and an interest 
to grow it. So if the Edmonton International Airport is focused on building the Edmonton International Airport, we had the municipal airport, so we didn't really need Phil Neff to grow lots. You kind of had that. Well, to keep the Edmonton International Airport alive, you kind of shut down the municipal airport, moved a bunch of that traffic down there, so you had all the jet traffic. Now you've got the two major terminals, and Villeneuve kind of became Sleepy Hollow a bit. Well, now there's this resurgence that, that okay, we, we want to diversify, we want to grow these things. And international airports did a phenomenal job during an economic downturn. They had about a billion dollars investment out there, grew up that whole facility, looking at the infrastructure, the, the track, the racetrack, the, you know, all the stuff with it, the Costco's and the big shopping mall and everything else. Awesome. So when I got elected, I knew that there was that kind of stuff. And I obviously have an interest in aviation going, okay, well, what about Villeneuve? Here's my chance to go meet these folks and to really ramp it up. Well, yeah, in behold, your writing. In my writing, yeah, which is awesome. Um, and knowing that we could really have an economic driver here too. So lo and behold, I jump on this and I start meeting the other elected officials at you know the different levels you were talking about. So at the at the municipal level, Mayor Natu, Mayor Alana Natu, hats off to that lady. She is an absolute dynamo. And she's the mayor of Sturgeon County? Mayor of Sturgeon County, yeah. And uh, very forward-looking, very forward-thinking. And she had already started it. So she had something similar when she first got elected. She was looking at what's going on with us. She heard about some of the animosity, but she bridged those gaps and actually at the right time because now the airport authority is going, okay, we've done the stuff at the International. Maybe we can start looking out there. So I come in like a bull in a china shop thinking I'm going to have to have you know this big push to get it. And all of a sudden, what do you know? I'm preaching to the choir. So jumped on with that, started pushing it. She's uh, gathered a bunch, herding a bunch of the cats. We've got you know four counties that are involved in it. Uh, the Edmonton Economic Regional Development Board's involved with it, the city of St. Albert, Marneville, Gibbons, et cetera. They're starting to pull their efforts. Oh, and Alexander First Nations, which is just up the road as well. Pulling their efforts together to say, okay, what can we do with this thing? So they pulled a bunch of cash together. They uh, hired a consultant out of uh, Kiss Me, Florida, and they looked at it, and Villeneuve generates about $62 million of revenue a year. But what the consultant said is, you're missing between 65 to $150 million a year. Here's what typical airports would do in those areas. And oh, by the way, why aren't you guys doing something with this? So when you look at location, the Muni's no longer there. Edmonton International can take care of all the, you know, the major shipments, the cargo, plus the yeah, people. The heavies. the heavies, they can take care of that. What about this whole other segment? Like, I mean, we can land 37s out here if we need to. We can also clear international customs. Oh, and by the way, we're part of the free trade zone. Like that bubble extends around the Edmonton International and extends out in the counties out here. So we start looking at that. We've got high-grade uh, rail that can take us out for heavy haul loads. We've got unfettered access without big obstructions uh, on the highways, major haul routes. And we've got aviation sitting here. Oh, and by the way, we've got all those, you know, energy-type guys. And we've got the tech component. We compete with MIT when it comes to artificial intelligence technologies. Uh, EA Sports bought a local uh, programming company. We've got Pegasus, you know, imagery that's working. You've got Arium down at the airport. All these neat guys that are developing drone technologies. Why aren't we doing that? So the Villeneuve Landing Network, get back to your, your question, Brian. It's finally that group of people getting around the room to say, what if? What if we dreamt a bit more? What if we actually started growing this? What if we take advantage of it? And instead of fighting people that you know have uh, you know, houses next to an airport that grow into it, why don't we set the clock straight? Around the area here, we've got a bunch of farmland and we've got uh, mining that's taking place for aggregates for gravel. In 15 years, the gravel's done. What are we doing with all that space? So let's start planning it out now. Building up the, uh, the training facility side of things, building out the aerospace side of things for development, uh, manufacturing on that side of place. And honestly, airports are cool. 
So why wouldn't you want to have a campus out here or, you know, kind of like a little hotel type idea where you come out and you do that? Uh, Hangar 11, you know, I heard some really cool things about that, that innovation, that concept of having like a trade center out here or, a, uh, you know, a facility where you can put on big events. And, and we've got the air show, you know, the international air show that's taking place. That's kind of what the Villeneuve Landing Network is. Getting enough like-minded people together to get the political will to be that catalyst to then get industry jumping on board and to start to build this thing out, which falls very well within our, our platform commitments and our economic relaunch. I, um, the, the one thing I think you forgot about too is not only do we have the, the land space available for it around the airport, but we've also got a fairly low population density yep. around the airport as well. So we don't have that problem that some of the other airports have with uh, neighbors complaining about noise and, and that kind of thing. Well, and that's exactly it, because everyone in the area is either uh, farming right now or they've grown up with um, gravel crushing plants right. and gravel trucks running. So again, if, if you do build it out, which I think is a really cool concept, if you do build the residential side, you bring guys that, and, and gals, you know, I'd say that gender neutral. Like-minded. Like-minded folks. Yeah, you can tell I'm still that farm boy. But you, uh, you bring people together that love aviation. Like if I had my druthers and I could do it all over again, I'd build it on an airport. You know, I'd put my hangar right below and I'd have that stuff there and I have that community and we know that fraternity we've talked about. That's what they do at the different airports uh, or air parks, I should say, down south. We've got a few incubators that are starting up here like Westlock is doing it and I think Okotoks is doing something similar. That's what we can actually do here. Build that out so you get a lot of like-minded people and oh, by the way, grow out the rest of the industry too. Right. And on top of that too, I guess literally, the airspace here is set up in a way where we've got Villeneuve Tower, which is open to let us do whatever we want. Yeah, pretty cool. Anything at all. I've never seen it before in my life. Yeah. Right above that, we've got uh, Edmonton Terminal if you want to stay in controlled airspace all the way out of the area. And then if you stay low, 2,000 feet off the ground, 2,500 feet off the ground, you're Class G five miles from the airport. Yeah. So the freedom to do whatever you want with whatever kind of airplane you want is second to none here. And, and from somebody that races airplanes some, with no transponder at twice the speed of every other airplane out there, <laughs> I can't think of a better facility to do that and test that, conduct high-risk tests at. So from both of those perspectives, you need both the, the land infrastructure set up and the, the, uh, the right space for it on the ground, but also the right space for it in the air. And this place really does have both. Well, and I think, you know, on the, what was it, the 22nd, we did that in Rust Remover. Yep. You know, here, which is kind of neat with the whole COVID thing that we managed to pull together people and do that. And to literally have 50 people on a hangar, broadcast it out, and you can get your reincurrency on it. But moreover was the, the caliber of people that we had presenting there. And the meeting that took place after that of getting those like-minded people together to talk about what if, you know, what if we did this with the aerospace? What if we did that to help grow with that drone side of the business too? Because again, when I'm talking about Pegasus and Scott, you're, you know, of that same ilk, they're four to five years ahead of Boeing right now. This is a little Alberta company that's really developing tech that can be utilized, made in Alberta, made in Canada products, not yep. offshoring things. Medium-sized drones for anybody's listening, 100-pound drones, that kind of thing. Yeah, like baby preds. Yeah. You know, that same type of idea. And, and you know, yeah, Stanley, vertical takeoff and landing. Vertical takeoff and landing. Once you get up there, you've got a push prop that takes over. They've got a little onboard charging system, 10 hours of loitering time, cruises about uh, 80 kilometers an hour, has onboard radar, which is just crazy cool. Yeah. So they don't necessarily need that same ground-based radar system. They can fly in Automatic all, collision avoidance. Automatic collision avoidance. Tracking aircraft. 40 bogeys at a time and then has the predictability of knowing the flight rules built into the software. And then you've got uh, uh, Wing Innovations out of Calgary, that's, uh, or Innovative Wings, I should say, Shane Daly and his crew, putting the airframes together. This is the technical savvy and getting kids all fired up and doing that, 
all building in our own backyard. So the fact that you can get Transport Canada and a major international airport at the table coming together again and going, yeah, we could, we could work on some airspace. What can we do around there to help you guys out? Um, this, this is, yeah, it's, it's un, unfounded in any other place, any other jurisdiction. We've got the right people here, and we've kind of got this catalyst right now to make things happen. Yeah, we're right on the edge, I think, of bringing drones into general aviation and not just uh, 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 piloted airplanes go here and drones go there. We're talking about flying them together. Yeah, and safely. Which is the future. And safely. Yeah. They can still do the remote, so you still have the person that does the override. But um, being able to carve out a section of airspace to really see what these guys can do with their tech and the emerging thing, you're absolutely right. We're on the cusp of it. We're four years ahead of where transport thought we would be, and we're five years ahead of Boeing. Yeah, right now the uh, the only limiting factor for drones is uh, is regulations, and the regulations say you're not allowed to go outside a visual line of sight. It's really difficult getting an SFOC yeah. to allow them to do that, and what they really need for that right now is a testing place, is a place to test and prove to Transport Canada that they know what they're doing, that, that their equipment is fully capable of it, and, uh, and then we're going to possibly see some regulation changes or at least some some SFOCs, uh, blanket SFOCs for those types of guys so they can actually perform uh, as they uh, as we know they can. Well, and, and the cool thing with that too is that transport is talking to these guys. They're actually bringing them into the fold so they can help develop the regulations. Uh, Nathan Cesaro there of, uh, well, it's Lanier, Lanier Associates, sorry, Lornell Associates. They have their sister company, which is Arium. And they end up tying in with uh, this company out of the Netherlands. They do robo-birds is what they call them. So they're doing these, instead of having falcons out at the airport, they got these, you know, drones. But they've been working together on it as well. Nathan's brother is actually part of the Transport Canada team that's coming up with the drone items. Cole and his guys are tied into that. So we have the people developing the tech that can be the experts to also help develop the regs. So being on that front which end. Which is how it should be. Which is how it should be. But oftentimes it's not. And that's where you get cross-threaded, and that's where things stymie, and that's where you get, honestly, regulations may not work, or you get safety issues and those type of things. But having those guys there at that time to help set that, that foundation and that base work as they develop, massive. And to your point uh, as well is that, you know, Brian, that we could literally, like with Marathorpe just up the road, what I would propose is we put a different CYA up over there. You have um, this corridor or this airspace where they can do the light stuff, maybe in an aerobatic box at Villeneuve, but you really want to stretch the legs on these things. Then run it out to Marathorpe. We carve off an airspace. They can do all the crazy drone stuff that they're doing, put a, a no-tam in the area, keep everyone else out of the box. These guys have unfettered access and really, really, really start to develop that and get all the brain powers that's coming out of the U of A and other places to actually get on board with us and grow and develop our own tech. One of the things I've noticed around here especially is the airspace availability, and I guess the traffic yeah. density is very low compared to many other places, especially in the United States. Oh, big time. Uh, especially this close to a city, a major city. So the ability to fly, uh, I guess, untethered with no restraints, constraints, anything like that is, is second to none up here. Uh, you can fly for hours and not see anybody. Absolutely, yeah, that's it's it's amazing. I, we're flying around, we're doing some formation flying, and we just don't see anybody, and uh, you just don't even expect to see people. It's just nothing. You can leave your radio off. Could not that not that we do that. <laughs> you can. There's no problem with that. Legal, yeah. I guess. Yeah, no, it is. But uh, you know, that's where we're kind of spoiled with it. So again, if uh, you know any kids out there, anybody's dreaming to get their license, yeah, go for it. Tons of opportunities. The other one that we're looking to is I'm, I'm part of the Skilled Trades Task Force and uh, also in the Skilled Trades Caucus. So we wanted to bring um, 
more more line of sight to, to the trades and and to the whole apprenticeship model, et cetera, and the parity of esteem. So we started getting a bunch of folks around, and we have uh, you know the former dean of Nate on it, the dean of SAIT currently, or they're the two co-chairs, and plus a bunch of other folks either from academia or from uh, trades backgrounds or a couple of pol- political, myself and uh, MLA Hominick or Armstrong Hominick are on there. The, the amount of horsepower we've got sitting around the table that are doing this for free, basically volunteering their time to come up with what this new model is. Aerospace is one of those. So again, when you look at an actual trade, when you look at the AMEs, it's not a registered trade. AME is Aircraft Maintenance Engineer, which is similar to what they call in the United States in uh, A&P, uh, Airframe and Power Plant Mechanic. Yep, there you go. Thanks. Um, so with that, trying to, to get it so you could get, I don't know, student loans, so you could get it accredited, so you could look at the, the comparable skill sets towards one of those programs and anything else that's kind of lined up there. And we know we have, we've got a deficit of, of pilots. We know that. We also have a deficit of AMEs and, and people that take care of these small planes as well, plus the big iron. So here's our chance to reset the clock, to get kids exposed to it, and, you know, in that STEM type of thing. If we're looking at that concept of, of Hangar 11 being out in the field, and if you're looking at it as being an incubator where you could have, um, you know, people come in and play with this stuff and, and get involved, especially in that amateur built side, to, to demystify some of the issues with aircraft, that they're just an airplane, to use old Howard Foss's words. They're just an airplane. You can put your hands on it. It's pretty low tech. You can figure stuff out and you can build it. Oh, and by the way, this thing will fly. Those are the type of things that we can do here. And if we get the Skilled Trades Caucus working, we reset the clock, we put that back into schools, and then you've got that opportunity to be a craftsman or a tradesperson coming out under an apprenticeship model. We can literally build a bunch of kids and we can transfer people from one industry to the other and, and really light up the aerospace. So I'm really stoked about kind of how we're putting the focus together, how we're bringing together some like-minded groups and really, you know, be the, all that we could be up here. And and there's more to it than that, just with the transferable skills as well. Yeah. So the uh, the the skills behind welding up, say, a 4130 aircraft steel tube frame is exactly the same welding skills that you need to weld pipeline. Yep. Uh, the, the way they build supercars right now, especially the top-end supercars, has a whole bunch of aircraft influence in it in how they do composites, and how they do uh, their systems work. It all comes back to that kind of home-built mentality yep. uh, of figuring out how to do things a new way and how to do it better. Well, and, and the cool thing we have with that now, too, with the, you know, the different CAD works packages, and, and you look at uh, you know Factory 5 comes to mind in the kit market down in the States, yep. where you had two brothers that had engineering backgrounds. They came up with a different way to, to do it. So now if you take that automotive side of things, you take the modeling that you have, you apply the aerospace side of it, yeah, you're absolutely right. You can literally troubleshoot, analyze your structures, analyze your frames, do everything online, and have those skill sets to go out there physically, do it hands-on, or we're getting to that point with the automatic welding and the CNC machines and everything else, like the fit and, and, and you know things that we have. Phenomenal. Absolutely transferable skill sets, 100%. And if you look at, two, uh, even materials engineering and science, yep. um, early on, the first composite vehicles came from gliders, which then became amateur-built airplanes, which then became certified airplanes, which then became cars. Yep. So that, that composite uh, materials, I guess, d- uh, development or, um, you know, the, the program that's been built around the world all comes from airplanes. And we see that also in other materials as well and, and new things that we haven't thought of yet, yeah. uh, especially in manufacturing, high-tech CNC computer-controlled manufacturing. It's being adopted first in aircraft and aerospace. Yeah. Well, and here was another one I ran across. Now, this is kind of fun doing these podcasts. You kind of you know play off each other in, in different memory hooks. Uh, graphene. 
you know, it was a big breakthrough a number of years ago. Everyone's looking at this going, hey, this is this crazy material. We can do all these neat things with uh, conductivity, you know, 300% more than what you can with, uh, with copper. Uh, tensile strength that's uh, far surpasses steel and, and uh, you know, ductility and everything else. You can form it. You can do these things. Really unlocking part of the secret in that, the secret sauce was, well, okay, they're getting it in chunks. And once you get it down to the, you know, the singular molecular level, it can do amazing things, but no one was really unlocking it. I came across a company called Graphene Leaders Canada that's out of the uh, um, business park that's sitting on the south side of Edmonton out of that science park that actually broke the code on this. So that's between them and the Koreans that have actually made it into a liquid product. So you can put this on the inside of things. You can coat pipes with it. You could take, uh, you know, rather than uh, carbon fiber, literally think of putting a paint application on that thin and that has far superior strength. You start applying these things and then immediately I'm thinking, well, let's try it out in the drones. But you start looking at experimental aircraft, all those other type of things. You, you literally start looking at how we can manufacture, put that together, and we've already cracked the code on it. Like it's, it's pretty wild. Yeah, we need we need spaces for this kind of for this kind of innovation yep. and whatnot, and and getting this kind of institutional knowledge to people uh, who don't necessarily know how to get up to speed, and then take this from uh, and move forward with it. And uh, Scott, you're you're a great example. of This, uh, where did you learn all your skills for for actually building your race plane and whatnot? That's a an uphill battle, I know, for you uh, along the way. And now now you've got kind of those skills, and but for someone else that's a that's a, a big challenge as well and if we have something like that here in alberta something like that out here at vilnuve now we've got that capability to really launch an industry of a bunch of people who are interested in that kind of thing people like myself that just i just don't have the the people around necessarily to do that i do through scott now but yeah. uh it's uh it's something that we definitely can really launch forward with well i think the other thing too you know we talked about the fraternity and the skill sets um you know here's the hard fact a lot of the guys that have this knowledge, they're gray hairs, they're cashing out. Either they're cashing out, they're going toes up, or that they're moving away, or and we're losing that. And I mean, I think the three of us have been pretty lucky to have, you know, mentors that are taken under their wing and, and tried to teach them. But you're absolutely right. If we don't have a place for people to come to for the next crop of kids coming through, plus the folks that are, you know, getting to their golden years and, and cashing out in one way or the other, we're going to lose that. And that would be an absolute travesty that's taking place. Not to mention the decline in pilots every year, too, if there's other impediments that are in the way that, whether it's the system or regulations or otherwise, that we need to break down those barriers to allow folks to see that. And, you know, the other thing about the collaborative side of it, you'll see it in art studios where you'll have someone who specializes in metal craft, and then you've got another person that does acrylics, and another person that kind of does some sculpting. So if you took that same concept, when you put those artists in a... In a common studio all of a sudden they start doing collaborative efforts and the growth on that and their skill sets and what they come up with is exponential i would propose to you it's the same thing if you took that college that campus type of thing you gave people a creative studio which could be you know hangar 11 or whatever we want to call things the 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 ability to do that and vilna would be the perfect tapestry and the template to do that like i'm stoked i'm i'm honestly i'm not making this stuff up <laughs> i was going to say the other word rhymes with fit but that's what we want there's the creative juices and that's how you get that the ability to do that and people love to come around that and like attracts like and all of a sudden this stuff just lights on fire 
Well, that's what we want to do. And uh, ma having makerspace like these are, 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 are phenomenal. Uh, we saw a lot of this out of the Sil out of Silicon Valley in, in kind of the 80s and Can 90s. Tell me about that makerspace because it was a, a word usage I've never heard before. Yeah, and, a makerspace, yeah. it's it's become very common here in the past, I'd, I'd say about 10 or 15 years. And it effectively embodies a space where you have the tools you need. So, you know, the regular home gamer, they can't go home and buy themselves a CNC router or a CNC machine or, or even a lathe or any of these kinds of things. These are just way too expensive, way too out of their reach. They don't have the space. But suddenly, a guy who's living in his garage or living in his uh, in his condo, he can now go to like a makerspace, and there's all these tools, and more importantly, there's people there who may have all these little kind of skills. And this is exactly what we saw launch Silicon Valley uh, in uh, back in the day. This is what launched things like uh, like Apple, like like HP, like all these different companies. I, I took a tour here a couple of years ago around through the uh, through Silicon Valley, and they were all just guys in their garages. And it's literally you tour around and it's just garages. And it's because they had all these little at-home kind of maker spaces where they could really um, collaborate with other people who had these kinds of skills. And uh, you talk to guys like Steve Wozniak. Uh, Steve Wozniak, he's, he's very famous for, for saying um, uh, some of the things he was able to... Um, uh, just call up like uh, random random executives at like HP and just ask for random parts. He's like, yeah, sure, take some out of the dumpster there. And just this kind of collaborative spirit that you just don't really get in other places. And a makerspace is, is kind of the more formalized version of that in today's day and age. Hmm. And it, it's it's really helping launch these types of uh, new new uh, endeavors. Well, that's neat. One of the things I've been uh, noticing, uh, especially in the last five ten years with with computers coming out, is this perceived lack of opportunity with kids and kids struggling to, to really see their purpose or, or find something that interests them. And they'd rather spend the time on the computer, playing video games, that kind of thing. Um, where today I'm seeing the uh, aerospace is kind of where cars were before kind of the Ford Model T before it became mainstream. And transportation, especially in aerospace, is a huge part of that. Yeah. Uh, will always be a, a key pillar of society, I think, in the in the near future. Yeah. Uh, and so the there's an enormous opportunity right now in making aerospace cheaper and making airplanes cheaper and computer-controlled manufacturing and new manufacturing techniques is going to be an enormous part of that. Absolutely. And we we're talking to Trevor, uh, who, who built his, uh, his, uh, his cozy over there. And he was talking about all the hours he hours and hours he spent sanding and and d building the, those wings, those composite wings. But if he had a CNC machine, suddenly that that man that mass amount of time it takes him to actually build that is drastically reduced. And if you just had access to them, a makerspace to do that kind of thing, you can drastically decrease that time to do that kind of stuff. Or three D metal printing. 3D that's metal that's printing. what I'd love to see. So I was going to jump on that. Absolutely. So you take the graphene that's liquid, you put it on a three D printer, you CAD the heck out of this thing, this design, you break it and bust it and find out what your limits are, print this thing out, glue it together. I mean, that's that's literally where things are starting to head. Yeah. So yeah, if we had a makerspace to be allow people to start messing with that and, and to get the printing in place and to look at different material types and do that, yeah, absolutely. We could have a, a forty-one thirty, which is a common aircraft steel, a chromoly printer, metal printer, sitting there ready to go, yeah. and you could print an aircraft frame, all monolithic, one piece, no welding, no cracked welds, no heat stress, no shrinkage, no crookedness. 
It would be perfect, straight out of the printer. Yeah, well, we we could be the basically the Burt Rutan of the North. Like it, basically, with his scaled composites down uh, down there, that's effectively what they were doing is is pushing the bounds down there. Yeah. And when I was in Oshkosh last year, uh, I was my first my first trip down to Oshkosh, and I get to see Burt Rutan talk. And I, I was so so excited and enamored. I'm like, I get to see this guy who's building these amazing things. And one of the things that kind of disappointed me was he said he said uh, that uh, it's been he's like where's the innovation here? There's not a whole lot. Stuff has stagnated over the past five or ten years, and there's not a whole lot of this new type of stuff. He's like, uh, since I've retired, like not not a lot of new stuff mm. has come out. And having something uh, as you mentioned like a Villeneuve landing network where we have this kind of uh, this this kind of um, entrepreneurial uh, kind of uh, business space to actually start pushing the stuff forward a maker space a a community back here uh, in Villeneuve suddenly maybe we could be the next version of of what scaled composites used to be and and maybe we can be the kind of bell of the ball at the next Oshkosh well and that's what I'm hoping um, again when the aviation council comes together too so you know here's the plug out there for Godfrey again uh, Cathay Pacific, he was you know, one of the salesmen there, worked for those guys for a number of years, and then end up seeing some of that go south. You know, pardon the pun, it literally did. And when he becomes an elected official, one of the things that would be in his bonnet was, well, why aren't we taking a look at aerospace? So that's exactly the thing, Brian, and, and on Scott again. It's for the folks in the audience out there, if you know someone who should be on this board that helps govern and say where the next big thing should be and how we grow it, we want you to put your applications in. We want these people to be at the table. You're not going to get a paycheck from it, but you're going to have a chance to be able to grow this industry. And make and a difference. Make a difference and make sure that we grow it together in the right ways. And again, you know, I keep saying Wichita North. Maybe it's Mojave Desert North, whatever we want to call it. It's that concept. We need to be that incubator. We need to be innovative and we need to dream big again. And we need to give an opportunity for folks to do that. One of the things that we haven't talked about yet, I think, is um, I guess... Uh, you call it what the, the Alberta Advantage? Absolutely. So, so for people that are listening, I'm sure we've got people all over the place that might not even know where Alberta is. It's directly east of the Rocky Mountains and directly north of the United States border, and it's a fairly large chunk of land, maybe what the size of Colorado or something. Oh, we're bigger than Colorado. Okay. So think of us as a, a baby Texas. Right. Yeah, well, like, like I refer to us as Texas North, too. That's the other thing. So yeah, actually because we like our guns, too. Well, we like, you know, it's the lifestyle, boys. <laughs> yeah. Like, honestly, it's it's part of that the liberty, bravado freedom. spirit. When you look at the makeup and the demographic of, of our history, um, just about half of us originated from the U.S. when you look at Alberta. Mm-hmm. The rest of us were the cast-offs from down east because you had all the established families. And they said, hey, here's this land out there. Why don't you guys go do something? See what you can build out of it. So when you took a bunch of people that either came off boats or they were driving cattle from north to south, you had some pretty ornery, gritty people that were full of drive and determination that liked those, you know, wild open spaces and everything else. That's our heritage. And, you know, our, our provincial motto is strong and free. And honestly, I think our forefathers nailed it. When I look in an Albertan, when we have that swagger and that talk, yeah, it's part of it because we're the quiet, calm Canadians, but we're also the, the, the Canadian, the Texans, we got the oil industry that was up here, all those innovations. And we were literally the economic engine of this damn country for a number of years. You know, we've paved more roads down east than we can even imagine out in our own backyards because of that wealth and because of that drive and that spirit. And we're a young province. And that's what we are. So when you're talking about, you know, places to be in physical locations, it's also a mindset. So that Alberta advantage is different to a bunch of different people. But that Alberta advantage was literally giving a place for people that have the dreams, that want to work hard, 
that will be rewarded. That was our major advantage for a number of years. It was a free moving economy where you had low taxation rates, you had uh, you know, reasonable regulatory process and everything else. And for whatever reason over the last, I'll uh, shoot, 10 years, we kind of became this bloated thing that we're sitting like that uh, you know, former high school star quarterback with the big beer gut belly and the cheesy sticking out of his navel going, yeah, you know, we're the best. Talking about the good old days. Exactly. Trans Am. Yeah, exactly. You know, so we kind of became that. We fooled ourselves. Other people are eating our lunch. Different jurisdictions are doing it and everything else. And then we, we took a major hit. We also had folks that were literally messing with our economy. So you had this you know, virtue signaling that was taking a run at us. We took it right on the chin. So the Alberta advantage? Yeah, the advantage is... We're too damn ornery to give up. We have that same ingenuity. We have that same spirit and that same drive that still courses through our veins. And we know that we want a fair deal in this country. And we know that we can do a bunch of things. We're going to belly up. We're going to go to the gym. We're going to work off that beer, beer belly again. We're going to get at it. Because you're going to see things that we're going at, our generation, that's going to build and pave the roads and put the skeleton in place for future generations to come. And that's the Alberta advantage. Come here, invest here, work here, best place to live, best place to have a business, best place to have a family, free air, free spirit, and you're strong and free. At an, at an individual level, from a 30-year-old's perspective, I'm finding I've been involved in aviation for 15, 16 years now. And when I compare what, uh, what I've got now and what I've been able to afford in aviation compared to some of my friends in other locations, I think because I live in Alberta, my salary has been very decent. And I've been able to save a lot of money and not spend it all on my house. Yeah. And, and that alone gives me far more advantage in aviation, especially uh, to buy more airplanes, buy more parts, try new things, fail a lot, throw a lot of parts out, build them three times mm -hmm. than some of my friends have in other places around the world. Well, and, and traditionally, Alberta has been a, a big oil uh, oil country. It's been we've been an oil province forever, and uh, oil is not going to last forever as much as we'd like it to. But it sounds a lot like uh, like you and the rest of the people in uh, in your government here are are definitely looking to the future and, and looking and finding new avenues and finding that Alberta advantage and, and leveraging forward. Yeah, and part of it too is that uh, you know when we look at our economy, the way I like to put it together is you got to look at it like it's a pole barn. So you got the major columns up there and you got the roof over top of this thing. Now, depending on your load, uh, you know, I guess I should make it more aviation-based, but you can see my civil background coming out here again. Um, once you put that load on it, depending on your column size and the placement of it, you can kind of carry it with your beams and you can kind of carry that roof loading and maybe, you know, one side or the other. But when you start yanking too many of those pillars out, well, then the thing collapses. Yeah. So literally what we're looking at doing is you can't walk away from something that's your main bread and butter. You can't do that. There is no way you would rationally do that. You know, unfortunately, with political virtue signaling the country, you hear to, you know, the new, our newest finance minister uh, saying that we're going to walk away from it. And, you know, to your point, Brian, yeah, it's not going to last forever, just the next hundred years or 40 years. Like you put stick a pin into it. It's still the cheapest, most ethical way that we can actually produce energy. You're not going to completely cut off the tap overnight. You are going to have a transition where we can do better things and we can talk about, you know, the hydrogen products. So we bought LNG was one of the big things. We kind of missed out the first wave. We got a big hit off the, the West Coast where we couldn't get access to market because of, I don't know, somebody who likes drinking fancy water box kind of sort of thingies, wears fancy socks and wants to take all of our guns. That guy kind of did this ban and, and messed it up when we had a bunch of foreign investment, over $30 billion flight of capital just on one project because we couldn't get through the regulatory process that was already approved and then he yoinks it on everybody. So that same crowd is now going to drive us off a friggin' financial cliff. And to hammer out that biggest column, that biggest pillar, you know, $115 billion within the entire country. It's not just Alberta, but we just happen to have that major economic engine here. 
So with that column and that pillar, you, you take those transferable skill sets we're talking about. We're talking about those merging technologies. So if I'm looking at hydrogen, you got two choices. You got green hydrogen that comes from, I don't know, stuff you can squeeze out of not doing anything else, or you got blue hydrogen. Well, by the way, blue hydrogen comes from the energy sector, comes from natural gas. We, we literally are starting to look at doing that as well and starting to grow that. We've got investment looking up in Fort Saskatchewan to do that. I can take blue hydrogen, I can strip it off of gas, I can also use gas, so natural gas as a carrier, I can then strip it back out and then condense it and have liquid nitrogen, or liquid hydrogen I should say. That's going to be this whole next green leap. But a lot of the reasons, fellas, and I'll tell you, I came from that pipeline industry, it's not the fact that nobody wants our oil, it's the fact that they want it at a discount price. And they want to keep it that way. Because why in the heck would you, when you're sitting on the third largest known reserves in the world, there's not one single U.S. soldier based out here, nor Canadian soldier that's sitting out there with AR-15s, well, actually, you know, M4s or C8s or C4s. They're not sitting out there guarding it and keeping the bad guys from making things go boom in the night. The safest, most secure thing. We had a thing called Fortress North America. And that was to make sure that North America was energy self-sufficient. And like them or love them, I kind of like them. President Trump had said it a number of times, we are Fortress America, we are energy self-sufficient. The U.S. under the auspices of the Obama administration and all these green things went from being the number one importer of oil to the number one importer and exporter of oil. All while slow dancing, our little, you know, fancy sock wearing PM that I don't want to even mention the guy's name, but everyone will get it out there and saying that we're going to save the planet, just shut down your stuff and stop pipelines. Like, it's wild. And we'll sell this product into the U.S. at a discounted price by about 30 to 40%. And as soon as it comes from our pipe that crosses right over Manitoba into North Dakota, and the first tank that it hits, let's say it's Superior, Wisconsin, that now becomes U.S. oil. And then the U.S., because this is a good business, sells it back to Eastern Canada at U.S. oil prices. The number one customer of us is the U.S. as Canada. And our number one person that supplies us on the East Coast is the U.S. And guess what? It's Western Canadian oil. <laughs> I, I can't make this stuff up. So when you got fancy socks telling you that we're ending the oil thing and we're doing that, they are absolutely out of left field, driving us over a cliff, kumbaya, let's blow into a pinwheel and call it a, a, a windmill, and we're going to save the world. They are absolutely out of left field, bonkers. So what we're going to do to get away from that, I'm sorry, I got a head of steam on me now. <laughs> what we're going to do to get away from that, my biggest thing, our biggest thing is getting access to deep sea port. So, okay, if I don't have to go through the U.S., if I'm not sending my stuff either down with Keystone XL down to Texas, and oh, by the way, Texas is set up for our heavy bitumens, yeah. and then we cut it and we actually sell it bitumen, which is a heavy product. You can make more cool stuff out of than you can shake a stick at because that's where all your plastics and everything come out of is, is bitumen. When we can make more stuff out of it, we're selling uh, a product that they wanted as light crude. So then they're cutting it with synthetics and doing all these things. We're taking uh, condensate, bringing it back, making dilbit, sending it down, then stripping off you know, this product and sending it back to us and reselling it and getting a discount for it. Like, it's crazy. So instead of doing that, why don't we just sell our product to the market that actually wants it? So Asia wants our stuff. They want bitumen, not the heavies or not the lights. They want the heavies because they can make all these you know, iPhone things and sell it back to you, yeah. right? So here's what we're working on. And literally, this is where we're working on. There is a corridor that takes us from Edmonton up to Fort McMurray, over to high level, into the Northwest Territories, slide by CarMax and the Yukon, because now we can go capture all that concentrate and all the mining products they need to, cut the border over and go right into Alaska. The rush is on, fellas. So now once we get into Alaska, we've got three deep sea ports right off the hop 
Anchorage, Niski, and Valdez, that I can get two million barrel tanker units, and I can also get big sea container units. So out of Tawasin Terminal, I can only put 80,000 barrel units, which makes it cost ineffective to send my product overseas, but I can send it down to the US again if I want to sell in Seattle or California or into Texas at 80,000 barrel units makes sense. But I can't send it overseas because price of oil doesn't make sense for shipping. But if I can get into Anchorage, I've got three deep sea ports. If I send a million barrels a day by rail to start off with, that would give me four remaining days to take every other cartridge product either coming back or outgoing. The cool thing is I can take a two million barrel tanker, send it over to Asia six days quicker than I can taking an 80,000 barrel unit coming out of Tawasin Terminal. The backhaul, now I'm bringing these major super carriers that are coming back, so you got oil in the bottom one way, coming back the other way with, with sea containers. That little railroad, I can now bring in all that product and that cartridge, make right around the Edmonton area as an inland shipping terminal, and I can get to the Midwest and the East 10 days quicker than you can out of Long Beach, Seattle, or out of, out of Tawasin. Are you talking the rail that runs just north of the field here? Well, we could tie into it, but this, is, well, this would be a brand new railroad, essentially, because you have to decouple from CN and CP. They'll have running rights down on this end, but mm -hmm. you decouple from them, and it's called the Alberta to Alaska Railroad. I've literally been on the phone with ministers up in Northwest Territories. Uh, we've been on the, the call with the Dean of Congress. I'm in uh, conversations with the other folks in Alaska that are actually pulling us together. We've got calls into the Yukon, which ties right into their mandate. 14 of the 15 First Nations are gaga about this because they'll actually own part of it. That's where we start. And then you start decoupling that. When we do the economic studies of the McKinsey Group out of uh, New York, actually ran the numbers on it, Alberta gets an uptick between 13 to 17% in our GDP. Because we're unlocking logistics, we can get our products to market, and now look at the ag side of things. So instead of sending you know, canola, why am I sending those polymer gels? Why am I not sending the final foodstuffs? Like, this is what we have to talk about. And I don't need to go east anymore. I don't need to go north and south. That's already built out. This is nation building. This is province building. This is enhancing and, and doing what we need to do to grow the northwest. You want to talk about energy independence. This is the Alberta advantage. We've got the drive, the ability to do this. Let's start talking about it. Let's start backing people doing it. And let's start getting our products to market. Not jumping up and down, not holding our heads in the sand, not saying we're going to save the world by turning off our car. You want to talk about carbon outputs? Think about how many billions of tons of carbon we can save every year by getting our product over there, doing it in a greener way, rather than, you know, sending product down through the Gulf of Panama, back to the East Coast, or buying our own product back from ourselves. Like, this is cuckoo. So again, if we start sending either the LNG that way, now you put pipes in beside that line, now you can start sending hydrogen. We got an LNG plant or a hydrogen plant sitting up there, bang. This is how we're going to light up the lights. This is how Alberta's going to have that advantage. This is how we're going to lead the charge again with innovation, know-how, building on the experience we have, doing it smartly, investing dollars that grow out, not just for the next couple of years, putting that skeleton in that backbone in place. And that will be the Alberta advantage, and that's how we get the West strong and free again. Yeah. And, well, and uh, ships are actually one of the worst, uh, worst offenders for... Um uh, for uh, for polluting the environment because they just they have no regulations out in the ocean so the less time they spend actually transporting because there's nothing you can do to get around that and it, put them on a railroad that's a significant significant environmental advantage well the cool thing was is what we're seeing we'll have um, a, a conduit between Edmonton and Calgary and we'll start running conventional diesel tractors you know they're moving you know the highway trucks right yeah. so they're moving cartage up and down the road what we're looking at here right now is that basically you can take 20%, so similar to the numbers that you're looking in in the carrier with natural gas, 20% hydrogen into an existing uh, diesel fuel. 
So if you want to talk about green enhanced, you don't have to do much to change the diesel engine itself. You're just literally dumping hydrogen into this thing. It burns way more efficient, more, more clean. So let's take our train set. Again, emerging technologies of how you get there. Let's take our conventional diesel electric engines, which burn heavies or you know really heavy uh, diesel, start dumping in that 20% hydrogen into it. Well, now you're bringing your carbon outputs way down. You're getting more efficiency. You're also taking off, again, back to your point, Brian, instead of having 10 ships go back and forth, you have one, and it's going there six days quicker. I can then take that same product if I wanted to start dumping into the bunker crude, because most of these big ocean-going vessels take bunker crude. They have a small little refiner on board, and then they start bringing, bringing it up so it's in spec. And the other thing is they'll start it off on a light oil like a diesel oil or, or anything else and once they get up to temp well then you can burn this heavy gunk but let's say that we started changing the shipping industry on that side let's start enhancing their fuels they have on board with this you know liquid hydrogen again it's the same thing you could literally reduce the outputs by 20 to 30 percent orders of magnitude that we can impact it and that's the leap that's the change in the technology and that's tying it in getting you excited i know <laughs> Man, my wheels are spinning so hard. <laughs> right so here's the cool so thing about being a thoughts. being a politician, right? So yeah. when we start looking at the logistics, and you know the other thing, I'm you know getting better at it, but it's kind of bad at tooting your own horn about what you're actually being involved with. So you know, being the new guy, you know, haven't worked on this, but our government's a bit different in the fact that they find out what your skill sets are, and then they start loading you up like a rented mule. Yeah. So skilled trades task force, you know, dealing with the aviation stuff around this area, uh, dealing with the construction industry. I was on seniors housing and planning as well. So tying into that, um, you know, this rail project, um, our economic relaunch, I actually got named on, I think it was page 27 or 28 of I the economic. That. Yeah. So I got named as the guy who's going to lead a task force that will be tying in the energy networks, the energy corridors, both provincially and interprovincially. So this is when we're starting to talk about logistics. And then we start looking at the heavy haul routes. So it would be transportation, trade, and utility corridors. Those are the, the arteries that we'll start putting in place. And I'm so honored to be able to be part of that and to be named by the premier to actually lead that. Just, yeah, it's astounding. So what, what can a private member do that gets into politics? Well, in this government, you can light it up and pull things together and hit it hard like it's a project because it's the right thing to do and we're being empowered to do it. Well, and a lot of what we talked about earlier when it comes to transportation technology also applies in both truck and rail. Yep. Those same uh, new technologies that are coming out right now, especially with manufacturing, directly transfer over into those other industries as well. Yep, they absolutely do. And then we go back to that, that graphene. So again, if I can take something that has the tensile and the ductile strength, uh, it has that connectivity and, and everything else, you know, far exceeds that. Well, now, what if we started adding it to, I don't know, cement? Yeah. You know, and we've got a company by the name of... Um, There's already um, composite reinforcement in some cement. Yeah, so all of a sudden you start taking your rebar, and instead of having, you know, a, a 50 mil rebar, we can reduce it down to 25 because you've got this graphene that's been coated in it. So it brings up the strength, right? Yeah. And then you put it into your cement, well, then that reduces the amount of concrete you need, the actual cement itself. So then your aggregate consumption is down. So now on the mining side of things... And it gets lighter. It gets lighter and lighter and lighter. And your carbon inputs keep going lower and lower and lower. So those are the type of things that we have in our province that we're starting to glue together and we're starting to look at this innovation. But you don't do it by holding your goddamn breath and saying that you're going to do it with green energy, 100% full choke, shut down the industry because you don't need it. You do this progressively in advancements, eyes wide open, building towards an end goal. And you know the whole thing is you can regulate industry right into the ground. 
the best way to do it is, is no different than driving down a highway or flying with the eyes in the sky on, on, a, on a chart, picking your course with that nice magenta line and then staying within those boundaries, that, that bandwidth, or driving down the highway and having guardrails. You give industry and you give people a, a goal to get to, you make sure that it makes sense, that they can kind of bang along the sides and yeah, stay within the lines. Get there. Let them get there. Don't push them and force them. If you have to drive every single vehicle yourself, good luck, and you'll kill it. And if you keep doing that, We've seen flight of capital for years, and we've lost our Alberta advantage. Again, that cheesy and fat dude sitting on the couch with a big beer belly right. bragging about high school football. Yeah, We've driven everyone else away because they're eating our lunch. They're looking globally. They're being lean, and they're being mean in these other jurisdictions, and there's a race. There's a race to the next big thing. We can either be part of it, we can fool ourselves, and last person out, close, turn out the lights. And that, that's kind of what I'm seeing, too, is um, the, the opportunity here in that industry as well. Like most of what I've uh, accomplished to date in aviation has been funded through money I've yep. earned in other industries, yep. particularly the oil and gas and chemicals industry. Uh, same for me, Scott. Like there would have been no way I bought that old, you know, J3 Cub and had that. I was building the RV at the time. I was taking my flight training. Oh, by the way, then I was running a little company working on these SAG-D projects and then pipeline all over the place. And then you know, managed to hire another guy to Calgary that could, you know, his retirement gig was to build an airplane for me and bring it up to spec and do all that. There is no flipping way I could have done that. Oh, yeah, and start up a family without the energy sector, without the, the high-paying advantages. And the other thing with my, my job before is I would travel to different jurisdictions and provinces. And, I mean, you want to see uh, <laughs> you want to see the tapestry of Canada? Go into a pipeline project. It's the French Foreign Legion of the construction world. Like, <laughs> you literally bring everybody from all over the place. Oh, yeah. And uh, different backgrounds, different everything else. And, man, high-strung, high-spirited people that you give them goals and things to overcome and challenges. You know, we'll be spending over a million dollars a day in one little pipeline spread easily, just blowing cash like you wouldn't believe. So either you blow it and you make it, or you you spend it and you make it. Like it's it's there is no in between. You have one section of that pipe that doesn't have a segment joined together. The whole thing you could have spent a hundred million dollars and you had a loser. Like you're done. You don't get back there for another nine months. Right. So the loss and return on investment is huge. So the caliber and the kind of people you put out there. It's massive. Like, we can move mountains with that type of crew. That's the type of thing. If you want to see the tapestry of the province from all across the country, pulling together, coming out for these projects in the middle of nowhere, hammering this thing out under conditions that most people would never even dream that could be accomplished. That's the spirit. That's my Canada. That's my province. Those are the people that I know. And that's why it makes me so damn sad when you see these other things coming into place that start dragging people down that they don't see it, that they don't believe that it's real, that it doesn't happen. And then you're being told, that same crowd of people, that they're killing the environment. And, and the wealth generated from that kind of industry is what becomes the next investment capital into the next technology. It, it does, and we've, we've led the world by it. And, you know, if I talk about pipelines, it was the, the big build when we started going down in the States. The Canadian pipeliners were way ahead in safety and quality. There was no question. Like, we do it better than anybody. Um, you get the international guys that start coming over that, you know, build overseas. We, we had those guys here, the Argentinians, the French, um, tons of these people. And, you know, you want to talk that tie to, to motorcycles and aerospace, a lot of those same people fly. A lot of my friends from the pipeline side flew airplanes. They're the guys that had the hot rod builds. They're the ones that got into the firearms industry and did all those crazy things and cool things. Because, again, you, you've got a real high-strung crowd that does these things that are willing to take risks, gamble on it, and do that. I mean, aerospace, Villeneuve Landing Network, sitting here with you two guys, I mean, you're, you're demonstrating that in, in tenfold. You, you take your background experiences, but you can't do that unless you have that, that launch pad, unless you have that platform yeah, to start with. 
Yeah, the enabler. Like, look at Elon Musk. He's fantastic. He built these electric cars, and he's got rockets going. And, oh, by the way, where did he get a start? It wasn't building rockets, and it wasn't building electric cars. It was being PayPal. Yeah, making an making an online bank, doing right at the cutting edge of the internet. Yep. Silicon Valley. That, so, that, that maker space, he got maker it out of that right same there. maker space that was Silicon Valley. Yeah. So that's what we need to do, fellas. Need to get excited, need to dream big again. Need to think about this logically, have rational conversations with people, not be so fixated on polarization or partisanship. We're all in the same flipping boat. Don't care what color or how long your roar is, or is you better start pulling together. And oh, by the way, if you see water in the bottom, grab a bucket and bail, because we got to get to shore. I don't think much of what we talked about here had much partisan nope. tones to it. Nope. It all comes back to aviation and making a difference in Alberta. Yeah. And why we believe Alberta is the best place to do that right now. Absolutely. You know, really proud of this province. Like my, um, it was kind of neat. Like we we're supposed to have a, a family reunion down in Lunenburg, uh, Nova Scotia this year. So again, you got family in all those years. We traced it back. The the first Getzens, Gertzen was the original family name, got kind of tweaked over the years, but uh, 1751. So when you talk about the West and Western separation and all those things now, we don't feel part of it. We are connected. There, there's no question that we're one country. We just need to pull together again. And if, you know, what it is is one of those little props spinning and a set of yellow wings up there that pulls us together and drops all of that BS, perfect. Because if we got something that's in the air that gets kids of no matter creed, race, color, background, demographic, gender, or otherwise, looking up and dreaming big and looking in the skies and seeing those airplanes flying, if anything can bind us, yeah, that would be it. You know, we were the gateway to the north. Our spirit in aviation is huge, what we've done in Canada and well-respected around the world. Let's build on that. Yeah, and well, and that that uh, reminds me, we had a, a good little air tour here a couple couple weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, that was awesome. Where we had some, uh, some great turnout, and it was exactly the same, exactly as you're saying, getting those young kids or even just uh, people generally interested in aviation again. Uh, we made all the news. I got a call from my grandma in Saskatchewan saying, oh, did you see there was a bunch of airplanes flying around in your <laughs> no province? Kidding. Awesome. It's like, that was me. I was up there. Oh, that's, oh, that's awesome. We should touch on that a little bit for people listening. The uh, The original idea for this thing was, what can we do? It's, it's COVID. Nobody's getting out of their houses. They're all afraid of this thing. Um, most of the kids around the area have not really done anything all summer in terms of summer camp uh, most of the adults haven't done much either there's been no traveling so what can we do with aviation and our airplanes which have also been sitting in the hangar all summer to make a difference and uh, um, touch as many people as we can touch and uh, the original idea was what better way to do that than at 2,000 feet flying over God's country yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember uh, you you were talking about that a little bit, and we heard some of the people in Elevate Aviation talking a bit. And a good friend of ours, Eldon, uh, he said, "All right, I got to get. Uh, there's a bunch of people, a bunch of very skilled, very capable people. Let's get you all in a room and figure out what to do." And one of those big, big uh, uh, pushes was the air tour. Yeah. yeah. So we ended up with uh, almost 30 airplanes actually uh, uh, starting in Eldon's hangar, the hangar we're recording this in right now, the Energy Efficient Homes hangar. Uh, left out of Villeneuve and flew a, basically a big ring around Edmonton, stopping in, oh, I think, eight airports. Uh, and at the airports, we had people uh, all over the place at the fence line watching us, waving. And I think for most of the, the pilots, uh, we might have made the biggest difference of them all because most of them had never flown in front of other people before or even had people interested in their flying. Yeah. 
Well, and it was crazy too, and just to back it up a little bit from there, so you know the it's the pebble, right? You know, in politics and all of the other things, and and you have to think about what we physically do in our lives. And here's that whole plate for it in Kumbaya moment. So the little things that you guys started with and Eldon being that incubator and, and having, you know, those contacts and being one of the elders, if you would, if, you know, he doesn't take offense to that of pulling some of us other folks together and, you know, coddling some, bring us along was that by getting like-minded people, you had this idea. Okay, well, what if, you know, and I was really privileged to be part of that group to, you know, being included in that planning. Well, what if we did this? Well, okay, now what can we do? So you get that collaboration taking place. And then the challenge was, is to, okay, we're excited about it. So preaching to the convert is easy. What about those that aren't aware of it? So reaching out into those communities and then, you know, Albertans were kind of competitive. So we uh, got a little competitive on it. And then we, uh, oh, we're getting some beeps here. So being competitive about it, we literally had a competition between each one of those communities of who could support the air race more. And the whole idea behind that was to literally tap into to their business communities, tap into uh, you know their different clubs and organizations, and to showcase, again, visitors and travelers. And the other side of it was that, you know, we're going to talk about this air tour, you know, at this uh, um, training video that's going to take place that basically can reach how many hundreds of pilots out there across the country. So you get a chance, free advertising showcase, not only to the pilots that are coming across, but other pilots. Oh, and by the way, you're going to have a bunch of your own constituents and folks in your area that are going to show up at your event just because there's airplanes. So you can literally reach out to them as well. So for me as a, you know, pilots flown around, you know, little bit like you said never in front of a crowd by any means not a competitor or anything else just for you know personal use and those type of things to roll into these little communities and Drayton Valley was the first one I mean I've landed there and there's no one there before rolling up and having 300 plus people you know socially distanced and everything else outside but 300 plus people on the roads up you know lining to the tarmac and then once you drop out of the plane you know you drop your uh, harness off and you're stepping out that literally swamp you and want to talk about your aircraft Having, you know, elected officials and mayors and people like, you know, making speeches. We had <laughs> my colleague, uh, uh, Jackie Lovely, literally competed to make sure that we stopped in her her area. Yeah. You know, and then rolling up to, to Van Dyken's area there in, in Westlock and having that whole community come up. And I was the first one that landed at that one. And, and literally it was like the red carpet and you're surrounded by people and such... Um, a great feeling to bring that hope and that joy again, you know, after, like you said, everyone's been kind of locked in and it was reciprocal. That was the cool thing. You know, talking to some of the other pilots, one lady cried and I mean, just, just moving stuff. That was, to me, that was absolutely amazing. We got to repeat that. For those listening, the gist of it is take 30 uh, good pilots, very good friends, great people. Uh, That number worked well, pick six or eight airports and fly to them in a day. Yep. Stay low, find formation if you want. Uh, tell people you're coming. Rally the local and, and state or provincial government representatives. And uh, it's, a, it's a really great way to make a difference, especially right now due yeah. to the circumstances. Big time. And it, it uh, drew the communities together and, and literally it was that catalyst. And, you know, honestly, fellas, you know, we're looking for that place to stop in for a hamburger. We didn't have to. I think I was overloaded. I, I burned a lot of fuel <laughs> off during the trip, but I put more on my belly and the gifts they gave us, yeah. you know, coming in out of there was crazy. It was yeah. awesome. I had bags and bags. My airplane was full <laughs> of bags, <laughs> gift bags. I had two days. Aviator sunglasses, like oh, everything. Two days later, I was, I was looking in the back of the plane. And I'm like, what? 
more bags? Where did these all come from? They're multiplying. And I know we got fed, we got lunch at a few different places. It was it was great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and red carpet. Yeah. And the and the weather. I mean, it cooperated. There was kind of you know some things. And then it was again you know coming back to the original comment where Brian led me into saying, "Hey, what'd you do to your other airplane?" But um, that that prudence of having the weather briefs, that prudence of having more than one pilot the night before, so we didn't get caught in that get there itis. You had different pilots and skill sets looking at the weather, looking at the parameters. We made sure that there was an alternate date, yeah. you know, so you're not forcing yourself into coffin corner or anything silly like that. And it was all out there, and, and folks were cool with it. And making sure that we had good communications and the pilots looked out for each other. Oh, and by the way, you didn't need some special flight certificate because every pilot in command was responsible for their own ship. They were responsible for their own flight filing. They were responsible for that. And then, you know, credits to you, Scott, for setting out the parameters right at the start making sure that everybody understood what the mission was. There was no major thing other than arriving safely and then making sure you got back to, you know, to the main takeoff point again. Yeah, we said there's, there's two goals here, a primary and a secondary objective. The primary one was all airplanes that left Villeneuve returned to Villeneuve by the end of the day. And the secondary objective was we hold schedule and make all of our stops. And if, uh, if we can't make the secondary because the primary is getting in the way, we do the primary one first. Yeah. Yeah. And it worked great. Yeah, and there was, uh, and it was very clear right from the get-go, right from that first email that went to, or the, I guess the email, the no-go or go-no-go decision email. It was very clear even even there that everyone, you know, it was a little, we knew it was going to be a little bit windy, and uh, we we made it very clear. It's like if you're not comfortable, then it's perfectly fine if you don't make it. It's perfectly fine if you don't come. And we even saw some planes peel off uh, throughout the day as the wind started to pick up. Yep. And only the people who felt comfortable and had uh, and and had the the planes that could handle it. Uh, stayed around and it turned out to be a very very successful day and everybody that left not only made it back to Villeneuve they also made it home at the end of the day yeah yeah and that's huge I mean safety first always it was it was awesome the other thing that was pretty cool too is we had such a mixed um, demographic of planes Mm -hmm. and also variation in the strips so you know the last two stops were um, Barhead and Marathorpe and you know again consciously breaking off the two groups okay who can get into shorter 3,000 foot strips they're very Um, small aprons too for those listening so we couldn't fit all 30 airplanes at each airport and both really cool airports and you know again people are out there but the fact that we did that and dropped into these communities it brought awareness to aviation but um, I can specifically say the Marathorpe side of things they understood what they're missing out on they've had these little jewels in their backyard and we see that in Canada lots the states does a way better job at it than us but in Canada lots you know they kind of inherited these airports and they're like the ugly red-headed step buck child you know or, or the dog that has you know one bitten off ear and a bad limp and they call them lucky it's like yeah. that thing that they have to talk about and they have to take care of and that land that nobody that, uses yeah, and that, that cash hole thing right so they actually saw that if you come out and pay attention here you put maybe a little courtesy car there you can promote all your businesses give me a place to go i'll drop in there give me some decent fuel cameras which was really cool part of it um, because we dropped into that area so we're talking about the you know the pay it forward thing because we dropped into that area, they cognizantly changed their model that they will not be any less than the third lowest cost price in the province now going forward for general aviation. And so the because of that, is a yeah. big deal. It's a lot of airports. It's yeah, small. it's a big deal. So the fact that they'll make sure that we'll fly there, they'll give us good fuel, great facility. I'm I'm going back. I'm a believer. Like it was it was great. They're paying it forward to us. Well, and we're, we're all pilots. We all know we just need an excuse to fly. And if that's cheap <laughs> fuel or a burger or breakfast, we're going. Well, and let's face it, boys, we're always building flight time. And if you can do it for a couple bucks cheaper, yeah, I'd fly an extra hour. Yeah. And for those even traveling, if you're traveling across the country, yeah. 
BC to Ontario or something, and you're looking for a fuel stop in Alberta, there's a perfect reason to stop in Camrose. Yep. Look around. Yeah, and their airport's really close too. So, you know, with um, arguably if we get them, you know, the next step would be to have those courtesy cars like they do in the States. But arguably the next step, you're, you know, shoot, you could walk if you have your bicycle. You're literally in town there at that one. Hotels. Hotels. It's got everything. Tim Horton's Coffee for the Americans. They got a beautiful little little water water feature right in the middle for a nice little walk in the park at night if you want to stop there overnight. And there's even a casino if you want to waste your money on, you know, you saved on gas. You know, there's there's lots of really good things. Uh, When you look at Westlock, they're, uh, you know, did a different model too, where you've got, you know, like we're talking the Villeneuve Landing actually having those homes. Well, they've done that. You know, they, they, have those homes there so people live on the airport they got their own little flying community plus it's open to everybody else and their soaring club is is phenomenal yeah you know they even had an egg tractor pulling the soaring the the glider that was pretty neat that's yeah. the first time i've seen that yeah yeah you know oh, so you, yeah. was busy with airplanes big time and it wasn't just us no like that was the neat part about it yeah yeah, so aviation is alive and well. I've said that a few times, you know, on uh, some posts that I've done. And here are some examples of what you can do. So again, you know, hats off to Eldon and, and company, the mentors that we've had out there of, of getting people together, the like-minded, that next wave, you know, they want to help us do things and give back. And, uh, you know, if anyone's been to Oshkosh, well, I guess Eldon's been the sight and sound for that a number of years, the sound system. They have a permanent parking stall for him. So that's kind of showing how much he's given back to the community. So the ability to be, you know, potentially that next wave and to learn lessons from our mentors that have taught us. Yeah, you know, there's the challenge to everybody out there, Scott. I'll, I'll take you up on that. So any of the aviation communities, if you want to call in and talk to Scott, see what how to set it up, see what kind of uh, templates you need to do. Make sure you've got like-minded people so they don't mess it up for everybody. That was a bit of our concern too. And then give back to your community by doing what you love and making sure that everybody understands what you're doing. And again, this thing just starts to grow. We're, um, we're very much doing that at Villeneuve right now. We're trying our hardest to. Um, I keep all of my airplanes out of the energy-efficient homes hangar at Villeneuve. Um, I know Brian keeps his there as well. Yeah. Um, Shane's at another hangar just up the field. Um, if anybody's looking for uh, opportunities, come by, come visit, come say hi, knock on the door, because we're here quite often, <laughs> working, wrenching, covered in oil. It's yeah. quite fun. There's definitely people looking to invest in, in new things. I, I've heard something about some uh, some new hangers that might be arriving very soon. I saw a sketch plan of that. Like, that's pretty cool. So, you know, when you're traveling to the States and you see those type of communities and everything else, like, again, Sleepy Hollow type idea, kind of stagnant and everything else. Because, again, they were, you know, the Edmonton International. And, you know, Tom, if you're listening, I know you're focusing on the big strips and you did a great <laughs> job. But, you know, and, uh, you know, I say that tongue in cheek because he's a great supporter of what we're doing going forward. But uh, there's a ton of potential. So seeing some of those sketches and, you know, the old days I'm dating myself, I think it was the last class that actually did manual drafting out of Nate. But I know, crazy, right? And we were doing AutoCAD at the same time. But when you see a, a 3D model rendition and you've got a Piper Cub parked out front in a Mooney, and I think he had a like a chipmunk or something out there too. And you kind of got the old you know, style of the old legacy for Blanchard Field and the, and the Muni and what was there. And you kind of got that built in with the new and you kind of got... The grass. Yeah, like it's cool. Like I can, I can literally see, smell and taste that and I want to be at that place. Um, you know, and the other one that I saw, as soon as the Muni closed, Wataskwan did something similar too. They grew out that area and they started, you know, doing that incubator and you got businesses that are there that aren't even necessarily aviation, but that collaborative effort in building those storefronts. So yeah, if there's a place to do it and get involved, Villeneuve Landing Network, you've got tons of support. We're going to make this thing happen. And and yeah, we definitely want to grow this and be a showcase for the area. Well, you want to wrap it up there? 
Yeah, I think we're good there. We've done it over an hour and a half now. Holy crap, no kidding. You get a guy talking. Hopefully I didn't dominate it by too much. You kind of poked oh, me in a few things and then it just... Absolutely perfect. All right, cool. Well, I want to talk about these hats for a second, if I can, before you wrap absolutely. up. Absolutely. So, um, you know, messed, here's here's the logo we were talking about. I kind of messed with that. And now, you know, I am a politician, so you are going to get this on the back. But uh, Scott <laughs> and Brian, if I can make this couple of hats available to your viewers, I don't know. Whoever Absolutely. has the best question or something like that. Um, we kind of broadcast and showed these, and I kind of did a batch of, of 50 to start off with. And, you know, just I'm cheap. Like, honestly, as a politician, and I'm a conservative. I'm a cheap politician. I don't like spending a ton of things on bling or anything else. But if it's something to do with, with aviation or if it's to grow the economy, uh, you know, you'll see me out with a video camera stopping into businesses and trying to promote that. I feel that that's what we can do. So at the, the event, you know, I made some of these hats available, uh, got some T-shirts so people could get behind aviation. And at the event, I had kind of said, okay, well, here's some hats, you know, to the volunteers. And I, you know, when you gave me a chance to speak up there, I said, anybody that's interested in these. My office called me today. We got emails from coast to coast to coast asking if they can get these Alberta Air Force hats. <laughs> so <laughs> we struck a nerve. There is something with that. Uh, if anybody's watching offline, you pay for the shipping. I'll, we'll give you guys a couple hats here. But again, it's to promote that, that Alberta advantage, that spirit. We are serious about you know getting the province going again. We are serious about aerospace. And uh, if you're up in the area, come out to God's country, Laxan and Parkland, Villeneuve Airport's the heart of it. Let's do that. If we'll do it, we'll do a giveaway. If you if you share this podcast on Facebook <laughs> or Twitter or uh, or Instagram, then uh, then you'll be in the draw to to win one of these hats. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I like that idea. Also, let's hear some examples of. Uh, we've talked a lot about making a, a difference, a, a positive impact on the community. Uh, most of the podcast has been about that, I think. Uh, so let's hear some examples as well about how. Um, anybody listening has made a difference in aviation well, in their own community. And I'll yeah. give you an idea on that one too. Something is little. Um, I did a couple events where you get invited out to these things and we, we do that all the time, right? So you've got silent auctions and such. Uh, give away a hour of flight time. You're a private pilot. You know, you can take somebody up for a passenger, um, goes towards a good cause. They'll typically auction it off so it meets with all the cars, regulations, and everything else. You're not getting any gain or benefit from it. But the excitement and the joy it gets for someone that's at an event to give a gift, you know, sometimes how it works out to someone else that they gave them an airplane ride. Yep. And if you're confident, don't make sure you're within your control zone, but um, give somebody a ride. It's not only just your network, it's extending out of your comfort zone and getting other people introduced to it. Uh, amazing the stories that come out of it. I had a chance to give a couple of folks rides now that way and uh, goes huge, you know, goes towards a church, goes towards a children's cancer organization, all those things. So way with you giving back without, you know, always preaching to the choir, pardon the pun. I like it. I like it. Well, thanks very much for your time tonight. No, and thanks for having me, guys. Um, really appreciate it. This is uh, this is fun, and keep up the great work that you're doing as well. So yeah, thank you. anything I can do to support you guys over the years, too, keep those props spinning and uh, keep safe. And thanks, Eldon, for giving us the space to make all the recordings and be comfortable and have our meetings and get oily and spill gas on the floor and <laughs> everything else we do around here. Right on. This episode is brought to you by Podcast Edmonton. If you're looking to start a podcast or are curious as to how a podcast can help you grow your business, we can help. Podcast Edmonton offers podcast and live streaming consulting, as well as professional podcast recording. Visit us at podcastedmonton.com.